more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia. And I'm Jenna Fryer. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all of the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Matt Vaughn. Matt is a third-year PhD student in integrative biology, as well as one of our hosts. But tonight, he's here on the other side of the mic to speak with us about his research on ghost shrimp. Welcome, Matt. G'day, g'day. Good to be on the other side and see how it feels. Cool. So um, do you want to start out with just a basic elevator pitch or explanation of what the kind of things you're interested in and then a basic idea of what you're doing here? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, So I like to model myself as a disturbance and change ecologist. So uh, what I mean by that is I'm really interested in stresses uh, on biological organisms and uh, community ecology. So a lot of my previous research has been looking at an organismal level, uh, such as climate change stresses on organisms. But for my PhD, I took a bit of a shift. I wanted to focus uh, more on a bigger picture, so on marine invertebrate communities. And uh, the stressor that I'm looking at is actually the ghost shrimp. So normally when I'm speaking to people from Oregon, you know, I'll ask them, hey, do you know what a ghost shrimp is? A lot of people will say yes, because they use them as bait in fishing. So Mm -hmm. these ghost shrimp... Uh, they're not just a you know shrimp in a Halloween costume. They're uh, although they are quite translucent looking and fleshy, and these shrimp actually burrow down into the sediment, so into the sand or the seafloor. And they're really common in the Pacific Northwest in estuaries. So the estuary is uh, where the freshwater input generally from a river. Uh, meets the ocean so it's generally like a brackish uh, sort of water like a bay and um, yeah these ghost shrimp they're really common there uh, but we haven't found them offshore before so when I say offshore I mean out in the ocean sure and a couple of years ago we found a massive population of these burrowing shrimp offshore so my research uh, you know they're a new player basically um, offshore in that community so my research is really treating them as a stressor. You know, they're the disturbance in the system. And I'm looking at how um, 
you know, that community, uh, the invertebrate community. So all the other snails, worms, um, you know, bivalves, everything on the ocean floor, how that community is changing based on this uh, newly colonized species of burrowing shrimp. So what are the changes you're specifically looking for? Like, why are these shrimp going to cause like a massive change? Yeah, great question. So like I said, these shrimp burrow. And when they burrow down into the sand, they kick up a ton of sediment, right? So a good example is in Washington, uh, the oyster farming industry has, you know, been decimated by these burrowing shrimp. So we call it bioturbation. It's when they burrow down, they're kicking up sediment. So things like oysters, they breathe and feed basically by taking in water. So if they're getting pretty much buried in the sand, that's impacting, you know, their ability to basically live and survive. And when you get these shrimp in the sand, they basically form massive beds. So you get hundreds in a really small area, you know, if not thousands. So they're really highly dense. And that all those burrows are going down into the sediment below. So that's also making the structure of the sediment a, a bit weaker. So a lot of the smaller oysters and stuff will actually sink down into mm-hmm. the sand and basically get buried. So these ghost shrimp, they have that they have a physical element, right? But their burrows, are, when they burrow down, they're actually bringing oxygen-rich water down into their burrows. So they're actually oxygenating the sediment. So that could be uh, good for some organisms. And furthermore, they have these rich microbial communities lining their burrows. And collectively, like I said, when you've got thousands of these shrimp on the ocean floor, these uh, microbial communities as like a lump sum, they can change nitrate, ammonia levels. So they've got the power to basically change the biogeochemistry of the ocean and of the sea floor. So not only do they have that direct physical effect, they also have that indirect effect on you know the the ocean mm-hmm. biogeochemistry and the cycling and whether it's good or bad it depends on who you ask like i said if you were to ask an oyster farmer they probably wouldn't uh, be you know too big of a fan of the ghost shrimp but other organisms could benefit from ghost shrimp so there'll be some winners and some losers which you know makes it pretty exciting to to look at from a yeah uh on that last point the the biogeochemical disturbances. Um, do we have a sense of sort of the winners and losers overall? I, I know it depends on the particular nutrient, but can we say generally these types of invertebrates will benefit from X chemical flow? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, like I said, things like oysters or other uh, marine invertebrates such as, you know, bivalves that will mm-hmm. filter feed. We could predict that, you know, that they would be negatively impacted. Uh, other organisms such as certain types of snails, they deposit feed, so they basically feed on the bacteria and stuff on the ocean floor. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we could hypothesize that, you know, certain species are like snails, they could benefit from it. Um and when they're changing the biogeochemistry, so the region that we're in, in Oregon, as you're probably aware, is characterized by upwelling. So 
the yeah you're not i <laughs> know uh, definitely definitely not up to snuff on my on my oceanography type term. so feel free to explain those okay well i'm not too much of a uh, okay. oceanographer myself so apologies if i get the facts wrong but upwelling is basically when you get this uh really cold water um coming from the uh from the arctic from the polar regions and that travels down at the you know bottom of the ocean and then it comes up uh along the continental shelf uh along you know oregon and and california and washington so that's why when you go swimming in the ocean here, it's so cold mm-hmm, because, mm-hmm. you know, you're basically swimming in polar waters. And that water as well is uh, at certain times of the year hypoxic, which is a science term for low oxygen. So the fact that these ghost shrimp, they were found in the estuary. Now they've uh, colonized this, you know, new location that um, is completely different from the estuary uh, you know, from a chemical point of view and even just physically, it's seven miles out and, you know, about 200, oh, wow. f- yeah, 200 feet deep. So the fact that they can colonize that leads to the question of, okay, you know, you've got these already harsh environmental conditions offshore. If they're contributing to changes in the biogeochemistry, you know, as well as changes in climate change that are forecasted, they must be pretty tolerant, first of all, so mm. they would benefit from it. But other organisms that you know aren't tolerant to climate change, they're getting a you know an additional stressor in the fact uh, you know through the shrimp colonizing this area. So uh, those organisms could you know um, not do so so well. So, are there any other like examples of this? of a similar type of organism that has the same effect or yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, burrowing organisms as a whole, like there's a whole sort of subfield called bioturbation, which is, you know, burrowing organisms um, and, you know, the changes they have in sediment properties and, and um, you know, the biogeochemical impacts that they have. So I can't give you like a specific example as big as, uh, you know, the ghost shrimp, which is sort of why it's so exciting um, what I'm studying. But, you know, a a ton of worms burrow, um, you know, a ton of uh, different snails will also burrow down. So we call this area the infauna. It's basically there's a whole rich community living in the sand that often gets overlooked um, when people think of, you know, the ocean and, and yeah. you know, marine biology. So, yeah, it's, uh, the, you know, there's definitely other organisms contributing to that bioturbation as well. That's fascinating that there's an entire field, like, dedicated to it. So yeah. when you're studying the shrimp in the ocean floor, are you just looking at the top level? How deep do you go down to, like, find these burrows? Yeah, great question. So like I said, it's uh, pretty cold down there and pretty deep. So uh, I unfortunately can't can't go free diving down there or anything to get my samples. So what we do is we uh, use a box core. So a box core is the best way to describe it is imagine you had a really heavy and really big claw machine off the back of the off the back of a boat. We basically send that down, uh, you know, over the boat. It crashes down into the sediment uh, and then penetrates down into the sediment. You know, how deep it goes can vary 
based on the sediment properties. You know, if it's muddy, it'll sort of go really deep, like up to 30 centimetres. Um, but a lot of times if it's like a coarse grainy sand, then it'll go down to 10, 20 centimetres. That closes and we bring up that whole, um, you know, that whole area of sand and everything in it and everything that was on top as well. We bring that up um, to the top of the boat and then we basically put it through uh, a sieve and we get rid of all the sediment and then we pick out all the different organisms and count them and, uh, and ID them to species level. I'm trying to get a sense for how big these burrow areas would be. Is it the kind of thing where when you're scooping with a box core, are you picking up a whole burrow, part of a burrow? Um, yeah. How does that work? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So if uh, I guess this will be yeah more to the listeners, but uh, if you ever go out to the estuary at low tide, um, a lot of times you'll see these holes that are, I'm, uh, I'm on the metric system, so I say probably about, it. you know, one to two centimeters apart. You see all these, uh, all these different holes and every one to two holes, depending on the burrow structure, is one shrimp. So you see if you walk out of the estuary on low tide, especially out in Newport, this is the way you can see it, you'll see hundreds, thousands of these holes and they're the actual ghost shrimp. Now, offshore, we also uh, deploy a video lander that's decked out with these lights, mm -hmm. uh, lands on the bottom. So we can get a look at, um, you know, the density of the shrimp. And it in some areas, it parallels that of the estuary, you know. So it's a, a huge, massive abundance of these shrimp. And sometimes in some box cores, you know, we're only going down maybe an average of like 10 centimeters deep. Mm -hmm. And we're pulling up, I think sometimes we pull up about 15 shrimp in one grab. So, you know, they're highly dense uh, offshore and yeah. Gotcha. So these are relatively shallow burrows. I, I'm picturing like a termite colony or an ant colony and it's not quite to that level of sophistication. Yeah. So uh, this is hot off the press, actually. Oh, I just, uh, yeah, I just uh, finished a, a, a project. Uh, I'm in the stages of finishing it where I wanted to look uh, to see if this offshore population, if the burrow structure was, uh, you know, similar to or different from the estuary. So the estuary shrimp, they go down really deep. And when you think about how an estuary works, it's influenced by tidal cycles. So you've got, you know, ocean water coming in, then getting dragged out. Sure, sure. So you've got low tide periods. So my, what I thought was that, you know, if you're, they like to be in a moist environment, right? So uh, if you're a shrimp, when, when you've got these really low tides, you want to basically burrow down really deep. So you're still in the water table under the sand. So... Uh, the estuary ones, we know they go down deep and there's actually been like a ton of uh, different studies on, you know, the, the nutrient fluxes and the oxygenation levels of these uh, shrimp. So the reason why I wanted to compare the burrow structure and behavior was my thought was, hey, we have all this information on the estuary population. If the physical burrow structure is the same, then, uh, you know, the way we think about how this offshore the offshore invertebrate community is being impacted, we can think about it in the context of um, the knowledge that we already have in the estuary. But right. 
as I said, you know, we're going out and we're getting these shrimp at only 10 to 15 centimeters deep, which isn't that deep. Uh, and sure enough, in the lab experiments that I ran, I made these sort of hardened resin casts, let the shrimp burrow, and then, you know, compare how, how deep they are, um, like, you know, their total length. And the ones offshore actually have a, uh, a, a shallower burrow depth. So they're not as deep as the uh, estuary ones. And that makes sense. You know, they're in a body of water mm-hmm. all the time, so they don't have the same uh, problems that the, the estuary shrimp are faced with. So these things can't breathe water, uh, air, right? The, yeah, the tidal ones are mm-hmm. need to be submerged the whole time. Yep. yep. That makes sense. I mean, they can come out, mm-hmm. um, but, yeah, they, they, they need to be submerged the whole okay. time. Correct. Um, so you collect these shrimp. And you bring them to the lab, and from what I'm understanding, you let them make burrows. Is that all you look at? Is what burrows they make, and like whatever solutions you have, or are there other measurements you make? Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming very small shrimp. Yeah, well, uh, good question on their size. Um, There's two species in the estuary, and some are. You know about this big. What, what's that? Probably, you know, they can be about maybe, like maybe two and a half inches for listeners. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I'll just show my fingers and yeah. you can say how big they are. The other species is about this big. Maybe more like let's say five or six yeah. inches. Yeah, okay. And then and that's uh, actually quite large. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're especially offshore. Everything offshore is really tiny, like a centimeter. You know, like all the other invertebrates aside from like Dungeness crab. Are really tiny so these shrimp are also like huge you know mm-hmm. that, that are coming offshore um so in that uh project i was also i had these ant farm tanks these massive ant farm tanks and i basically recorded their burrow behavior over a 16 day period uh and i've got i think i've got about 106 hours of video that i need to watch and analyze wow. so that's uh, stay tuned for that. But basically what I want to do is look to see where they're hanging out in their burrow. You know, are, are they at the top, are they down the bottom? Uh, and also what, how much of their time are they spending doing, uh, you know, certain activities? Like how much of their time are they spending burrowing? How much are they resting? How much are they like ventilating or grooming themselves? Uh, their behavior when they burrow is, is really fascinating to watch. So that's another uh, aspect that I'm doing, but like I said, I'm really interested in the the invertebrate community and how that changes. So I'm doing a lot of um, community level analysis where we have the counts and the species of all the uh, of of the uh, different communities in these different locations all along the coast. So I'm basically comparing those communities and the makeup of the communities and how they differ. And um, in the future, I'll be running a a stressor experiment where I'm looking at exposing shrimp to hypoxia and ocean acidification. And I'll also be doing some modeling work where I'm looking at sort of uh, incorporating future climate uh, conditions in the ocean and, you know, looking long-term how these uh, shrimp populations and and the associated invertebrate community will change in the future as well. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's my dissertation in a nice, uh, you know, little <laughs> parcel <laughs> yeah it seems like a, a nice combo of field work lab work yeah uh computational work yeah i love it yeah yeah exactly and that's sort of why i um i set it up that way you know i can um yeah it's fun you know i can i can do writing and analysis and then some lab experiments and i can go play on a boat and yeah 
So you said that some of the communities you're looking at are out at Newport. So how much are you in the lab here in Corvallis versus out there in Newport? Yeah. So I live in Corvallis, but I don't have a lab here. So I'm always <laughs> out at uh, Hatfield Marine Science Center. There's a ton of really cool uh, research that goes on there. And we have a visitor center. So, you know, if anyone's listening and wants to check it out, that's a, yeah, that's a really cool thing to check out. But yeah, all my research is uh, out at Hatfield and um, cruise wise, like going out on boats, um, that varies how often I do it. You know, we've done like a couple of multiple day long trips. We've actually sampled from just south of Newport, uh, pretty much all the way up to Southern Washington. So we've, um, we did about 140 box scores. Um, so, you know, we've got, we've got a ton of, um, community data sort of looking all up the coast comparing areas with shrimp and without shrimp uh, under similar environmental conditions. God, I talked so much and then I forgot what the question was and I just hope I answered it. <laughs> you did. <laughs> cool. Um, so did you always know that you wanted to study shrimp or like ocean species or what brought you to decide this is what I'm going to write a extremely long dissertation about yeah no i um yeah i i I never had a soft spot for shrimp you know aside from liking to eat them um (laughs) yeah so it's not that i'm uh really passionate about shrimp it's just that um yeah you know i'm passionate about about uh looking at how communities change and, and shrimp happen to be that that stressor yeah cool um oh yeah i was gonna ask so is the, you mentioned the the impact of the burrows? Do the do the shrimp themselves are are they predatory or or do they do they impact invertebrates the other invertebrates in that way or what do they eat? Yeah, so what they eat that's a uh, that's a good question. So a lot of the previous literature said they were um, suspension feeders which basically means they would have to come out of their burrows and basically get anything small enough in the water column, so larvae of, you know, different different invertebrates or, or whatever, um, microorganisms basically, and they would, and they would eat their, they would get their food source that way. But the burrowing behavior um, sort of videos that I've got, I never saw the shrimp coming out of their burrows. Mm. Right. So I, I never saw them coming out of their burrows. Furthermore, I've I had a holding tank of shrimp and I've kept them there for like four or five months and they were fine. So without food. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't feed oh. them at all. So this is actually really exciting um, because what I think is going on and this hasn't been recorded in the literature, but I think that they're actually farming their microbial community. So. Like wow. I said, their burrows are, um, you know, lined with the, these microbes. And the fact that they're pretty much like self-sufficient in these burrows, like these burrows are like their life. They basically spend most of their time burrowing. <coughs> Sorry. And, uh, yeah, so I think uh, that they're actually like, yeah, farming the bacteria and microbial community. So stay tuned for that. There's more coming on that. Um, and on the other side of them being a predator, uh, they could actually be a prey as well. So 
True. A lot of sturgeon, a lot of um, grey whales, so big, you know, charismatic megafauna and important fishery species. They actually feed on ghost shrimp as well. So not only, you know, ghost shrimp having an impact on the surrounding uh, community, but they're also having a, a trophic impact on higher food on higher levels in the in the food chain, basically. So they could be an important energy uh, or food source uh, to bigger predators. And um, as I understand, that's part of what you are looking to model into the future is the precise way that uh, them being a novel source of food could have ripples into the broader ecology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, one thing that I'm doing is I'm collecting uh, their biomass data and their uh, the the total kilojoules. So basically, how much energy are they adding to the system? And in the modeling uh, component, I'm actually it's called uh, EcoPath with EcoSim. I haven't used it yet, so don't ask me too okay. much uh, questions on it. But basically, it's a way that you can model food webs. So I can be like, okay, in this area we have you know x amount of like these snails and x amount of these worms and this many shrimp, right? We know these shrimp eat this and like these worms eat that. And, you know, we can sort of start to form a base model based on, um, you know, the larger food web structure. And then, uh, you know, we can sort of run that into the future with the um, counts that we've got. You know, we've got a proportion of of the of the population uh, and we've got, you know, some some abundance counts. Uh, while also factoring in climate change. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'll get, a, a, it's a really complex model. There's going to be a ton of inputs, but yeah, definitely factoring in, um, you know, their their role as an energy source and the, you know, trophic relationships with, with other organisms. Well, as we can hopefully all tell by your accent, you are not from Corvallis, Oregon. <laughs> so what brought you here all the way from Australia? Yeah, great question. Yep. So I'm from Australia. And uh, yeah, during my undergrad, I uh, wanted to uh, just experience American culture and American university culture. So I did a year in uh, San Diego, San Diego State. Had an absolute blast. So I did that so I could... Um, expose myself with more marine biology classes. Uh, and then, you know, I had such a great time. Like there's a lot of benefits to academia in the U.S. There's a lot of opportunities. There's, you know, so many great scientists and so many labs uh, going on. So I really wanted to delve into that like a little bit more. So I went to University of Delaware, um, had a really good time there. Uh, and then, yeah, I did a cross-country road trip from Delaware to Oregon. And, uh, yeah, here we are doing my PhD. And you did you know uh, shrimp at, at that point? I know you said earlier it wasn't necessarily a, something you've been specifically studying shrimp. But <clears throat> at the time that you were choosing grad schools, was that I want to work on this region of of the U.S. coast is that was that kind of a factor in in how you decide? No, no, not really. Um, so I've sort of just taken you know 
as many opportunities that that come my way. So I guess I'll, I'll back up a bit more and sort of say how I got into science. So definitely, yeah. When I was uh, when I was in high school, I hated science. I just wasn't a fan of it. You know, I didn't have a great teacher. I um, only took it for about a year or so and then dropped it. And, you know, yeah, just science uh, Science wasn't what I was interested in. So I worked in sales uh, on and off for about five years. So, you mm-hmm. know, I was basically establishing a, a career in sales. And uh, as I was doing that, I was doing a ton of travel trips. So one of those trips, I was backpacking around Southeast Asia and I ended up in Borneo uh, doing conservation. I was oh, wow. volunteering doing conservation work with the sun bears. They're the world's smallest bears. And I was chatting to some people that were working there and they were basically getting paid to be there. I was like, oh my God, how are you doing that? That sounds like the coolest thing ever. You know, here I am volunteering for this. You can actually get paid to like study these right. bears. Uh, so I came back and I, and they told me, yeah, yeah. So we got into this, we, we did environmental science and I was like, right, I need to go back and basically get a, an environmental science degree so I can get awesome jobs like this. So that was, you know, sort of my foray back into science and yeah, I was, uh, never interested in it, but then, well, I thought I was never interested in it, but then, you know, once I started applying myself to it and I had teachers that I really, that I, um, you know, got along with and, and really liked, um, I, I realized that I had been passionate about science the whole time. I just wasn't aware of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah. So while I was doing my undergrad, I, uh, there was an opportunity to do a, uh, about two and a half week, um, research experience on uh, Lizard Island on the Great Barrier Reef. And basically what I got to do was dive every single day on, on a coral reef. Uh, unlike unlike the Oregon coast, sounds like. No, <laughs> no upwelling there. Yeah, no, no. I was uh, just diving in board shorts basically. So yeah, the sun on my back and lots of pretty corals and, and fish everywhere. Uh, so then, of course, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, this is actually what I want to do. And that's what led me to uh, looking into pursuing marine biology further. So I was originally in um, environmental science and, you know, San Diego had a pretty good marine science program. So that's how I ended up in San Diego. So I can't say that, you know, I definitely like shrimp or what coast, you know, wherever I was, that was never a factor. I was Mm -hmm. just taking the opportunities that uh, came came my way you know there were some things I did that I didn't really enjoy and you know really just um just trying as much as I could to find out what I liked and then you know saying yes to opportunities and see where I end up and you know I guess uh it sort of worked that way coming here uh in Oregon I'd been to Oregon before I you know had a really good time there uh yeah and you know my advisor her research was really up my alley and sort of where I wanted to go into the future So it was uh, a combination of, you know, curiosity, interest, seeing what what opportunities are out and sort of just, you know, taking a leap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a good uh, attitude, follow the opportunity. Yeah. Well, as it seems that you took a shift away from wanting to work with sun bears in the future, where do you see your uh, path post-school going? Yeah, that's a great question, you know. So I've sort of been all over the place from sales to sun bears to... 
Yeah, to Oregon shrimp. Um, I don't. I don't want to. I, I, I'm sort of hesitant to give you an answer because I don't want to jinx all the awesome, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of opportunities that have came my way. Um, I will say that a big part that a big factor that got me into science was having passionate teachers when I was in undergrad. Like I said, I didn't have the best teachers in high school and I wasn't passionate about science through those teachers, even though I guess innately I had, you know, a passion for it. So I am leaning more towards uh, academia. You know, I would really love to just inspire, you know, the next generation, you know, people that, you know, might not think science is for them. They, you know, hopefully with, you know, enthusiasm and an instructor that's, you know, really passionate that might be able to change their mind. Uh, and I just love research. You know, I love all the opportunities that come with it. And I, I don't like too much of a structured life. And I feel like there's a lot of chaos in research. Uh, so right now I'm leaning towards academia. Uh, but any, uh, any employers out there, don't <laughs> hold me to that. I'm, uh, I'm willing to listen to all opportunities. <laughs> Well, yeah, inspiration is all what we're all about here. Um, and as we're getting sort of to the close of the interview, um, maybe that's a good time to talk about one of our traditions, which is asking you to give a piece of advice to anybody. It could be somebody who's looking to get into marine biology, somebody who is not inspired by science, but whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. So if I was uh, to give... Any advice, I guess you can probably take it, um, you know, just out of analyzing the interview, but it's really say yes, you know, to any opportunities that come your way. Um, you know, especially if you're an undergrad, there's a lot of opportunities to try new things, join new clubs, try different research, you know, even go overseas. Um, so say yes to as many things that, that come your way. You, you never know where you're going to end up. So you might as well give it a crack. And I always say, I guess, uh, don't sue me if it doesn't work out, but I'd rather regret um, something I did than something I didn't do. So as cliche as it sounds, that's uh, that's advice that's suited me well so far. That's great. So another one of our traditions is asking, what is your favorite part about your research? My favorite part about my research is I am constantly physically and mentally simulated. And like I said, that's from the combination of um, lab work, field work, um, modeling, stats, analysis. Uh, yeah, definitely that. And also, yeah, all the opportunities to travel and meet new people like you two and have great chats. Much appreciated. Um, our final tradition is that you get to choose your sort of walkout song. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about <laughs> what you chose? Yeah. Well, if you haven't learned anything from me uh, uh, in this podcast and you're just, you know, like a massive shrimp person and I've taught you nothing, then hopefully I can teach you something through this song because not a lot of Americans know, but the band The Wiggles is actually an Aussie band. So I thought uh, it'll be great to put this absolute banger on the on air, and uh, I chose Fruit Salad by The Wiggles. All right, well, we're about to play that, but uh, thanks again, Matt. Fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Fruit salad, yummy, yummy. Fruit salad, yummy, yummy.
Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.